0: Well, friends, honestly, when Wayne concluded reading verse 27, I really wanted to give him a round of applause. (laughs) So thank you for taking one for the team, Wayne, very much in uh, reading that passage for us today. And uh, we're grateful to you. I I read some while ago that uh, overarm bowling was introduced into the game of cricket. I'm just pausing to see if the word cricket has some sort of instant soporific effect on some of you. Um, some of you will no doubt be or have been keen cricketers and some will be cricket fans and have been following the recent T20. But um, I read recently that um, overarm bowling was introduced into the game of cricket about 200 years ago because women's dress styles and women played cricket as well as men that many years ago uh, women's dress styles made it impossible for women to any longer roll the ball along the ground. Did you, have you ever heard that? Well, that's what I heard and I looked into it and it seems there may be some, some truth to it. Now that's a snippet of information which when we hear it, the appropriate response is to say, hmm, well that's interesting. I mean it might one day come to your aid if you find yourself on a pub quiz team or I suppose, more probably a church Christine. It's interesting, but it's not very life-changing, is it? And some information is like that. We hear something, we read something, and it's informational. It adds to our sum of knowledge. But some things, when we hear them, are transformational. They don't merely add to our sum of knowledge. It's not merely that we go away knowing something we didn't previously know, We hear something and it challenges us. And it changes us. And it demands action from us. And that's really what was going on in chapters 8 and 9 and to some degree chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 8, and I listened to Jim Merkitt's excellent message from I think a couple of weeks ago on Nehemiah chapter 8, Jim set out for us what was happening. Every day for 30 consecutive days the people of Jerusalem gathered to hear God's word read out loud for hours and hours. And they weren't simply adding to their sum of knowledge. It wasn't merely that they were learning things they hadn't known, or even being reminded of things which they had forgotten. They weren't just getting information, they were opening themselves up for transformation. And what God said to them through the word changed their attitudes to themselves changed their attitudes to each other, it changed their attitudes towards God. Um, and that, that, that happens shouldn't really surprise us. Because in the New Testament, um, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit's role in bringing to people a conviction, it's called a conviction of sin. When people hear the message of the Gospel, the message of the Bible, the Holy Spirit wants to work on those people and convince them that they need to change, that something is wrong in their life. I heard a lovely story years ago about a, a chap who found himself in court, uh, accused of a crime, and initially when the trial opened he pleaded not guilty. But uh, partway through the trial, before it was all done, partway through the trial he, he asked permission to change his plea to Guilty. And the judge said, but you began by pleading not guilty. He said, well, yes, but that was before I heard the evidence. (laughs) See, when he heard the evidence, when he heard the testimony, when he realised that there was an irrefutable case establishing his guilt, he changed his plea. That's what hearing God's word should do for us. God the Holy Spirit presents to us an irrefutable evidence that we are in the wrong. That's what Jesus taught in John's Gospel and chapter 16. When the Holy Spirit is come to you, he will convince or convict the world of its guilt with regard to sin and the word convict there means to present someone with irrefutable, undeniable evidence of guilt. And when these people gathered around the Word of God and heard it heard it read, um, that was their first reaction, the realization that they were not right with God. The realisation that something had to change. And it it brought them to tears. And they they wept and had to be encouraged eventually. Do not grieve any longer, we read in chapter 8. This is a time for rejoicing. And that again is a wonderful picture of what God wants to do with people. First he wants to, to, to bruise us and then he wants to bless us. He has to hurt us before he can heal us. And before someone can become a Christian, they need to have that conviction that they're in the wrong with God. But God doesn't want us to go on groaning through life, bewailing all the time about how terribly sinful we are. Because once he's convicted us of our sin, he wants us then to have the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven. And so we read in chapter 8, do not grieve any longer, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a wonderful thing. Well, the, the Word of God, as we read through 8 and, and 9, changed not only their attitudes, it changed their actions. They discovered that God wanted them to do something. They discovered they'd been remiss in not doing something. So they immediately got on and did it in that particular instance. They realised that for a certain period of the year they should be living uh, outdoors effectively or in temporary, temporary booths and, and structures. And uh, Jim was so helpful in this, so I'm going to be very crisp about it, but just for context, I just want to touch base a little with uh, chapter eight. Because the presentation of God's word to the people uh was first of all, we not note this. It was it was general. God's word was read to all the people. The Bible specifically says men, women, and others. Well, there's a kind of topical contemporary note for the day, but I think it probably means children and just just everybody god 's word was for all people its reading was generally to be received god 's word was read aloud it was audible uh, listen um, do I know you well enough to allow a little bee to get out of my bonnet and buzz around for a moment uh, see i 'm reading here in Nehemiah that God's Word was read out loud. People clearly could hear it. If you can't hear it, you can't engage with it. And so God's Word was audible, the people heard it. And, and honestly, sometimes I listen to people uh, reading the Bible in church, it hasn't happened this morning, Wayne was nice and clear and, uh, 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 and uh, helpful for us in that. I hear people reading the Bible in church or even more, leading the congregation in prayer, as Anna did, and Anna was again perfectly audible. But sometimes I hear people doing it and inwardly I want to scream at them. Don't mumble. When you do something at the front of a congregation, you are not having your quiet time in public, friends. You're leading the people, you're projecting something so that people can engage with it. So the word of God was audible. The reader himself was visible. That was a practical thing, wasn't it? Everybody could see him and everybody could hear him. And it was also quite a, a, almost a subliminal reminder to the people that the word of God was over them, that they were under the authority of God's word. And the reception of God's word was respectful. The people stood to listen to it. Now, this is a cultural thing. Those of you who, like me, have travelled in various parts of the world and and perhaps uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, know that in some churches, if a congregation are sitting down and the pastor says, let us pray, the congregation will stand up. And in some churches, particularly churches which have a Russian tradition, when the word of God is read, the people stand to read. Now I'm not saying we should do that. It's a cultural thing. But it does speak about a respectful attitude to the word of God. That people in this occasion stood. And the whole exercise was sensible because in chapter 8 and verse 8, the meaning of the words were made clear. Of course, somebody has said true reading is exposition. The Bible does to some degree expound or explain itself as it's read. But clearly there is explanation given in parallel or kind of in tandem with the reading of God. And in chapter 9, in the first few verses, we get a wonderful summary of the effect of the people on hearing from God. Chapter 9, just look in your Bibles if you would. Chapter 9, in the first three verses, we are, we are kind of reeling in the passage for the day. We're getting there, but just bear with me for a few moments. Chapter 9, in the first three verses. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, and wearing sackcloth, and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers, and they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the the Lord their God, for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. So the effect of the people on hearing the word of God is summarised here in three ways. First of all there was repentance, as indicated by sackcloth and ashes. Secondly there was confession of sins. And thirdly there was a determination on the part of the people to live in a distinctive God honouring way. What people in believers of previous generations used to call separation a determination to live their lives in a way which is distinctive and honoured God. And then it moved into worship and then it led to remembrance. And that brings me at least close to today's allotted passage. Because in chapter 9, the people were given a, a history lesson. It was a bit of a whistle stop tour of about 1700 years of Jewish history. Um, and it was a history in chapter 9, this is what the whole chapter is really about, it's a history in chapter 9 of which underlined the distinctive characteristic of God's people was, do you know what it was? It comes out again and again in their history. The distinguishing feature of God's people above almost anything else was just how ready they were to walk out on God. That just runs right away through their history. But the speakers in chapter 9, and there were, it seems to me reading the scripture, there was a team of 10 people who were somehow sharing out this teaching responsibility. The speakers reminded the people of a number of things. First of all in verse 6, chapter 9 verse 6, they reminded them of the greatness of God. He was the maker of the heavens and the earth, the starry hosts and everything in it. Secondly, the speakers reminded them in verse 7 of the grace of God. God is the one who selected Abraham. He didn't have to do that. God was under no obligation to select anybody. God was under no obligation to identify and choose a nation to be his own particular people. God was and is under no obligation to be nice to anyone. But God in his grace chose Abraham. And he chose therefore Abraham's descendants to be his people. Not, Abraham had done nothing to be particularly deserving of God's selection Abraham it seems there's no reason for thinking and particularly this is borne out when you look at the sort of life Abraham went on to lead there was nothing innately more godly about Abraham no doubt than there was about many other people he was in many ways a thoroughly bad lot but God chose him and that was a selection made in grace In verse 9, he reminded them of God's goodness to them in rescuing their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. He reminded them of the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. He reminded them of God's provision for them as they travelled, food and water and guidance. He reminded them of God's gift to them in chapter 9 of verse 25. The speakers reminded the people that God had given them a homeland complete with fortified cities Houses, wells, vineyards, groves, olive groves, fruit trees. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10 says this, God gave you cities you did not build. Houses filled with good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And they were reminded, as they had this history uh, summarised for them, this little praises of 1700 years of Hebrew history, They were reminded of the numerous times that God had forgiven them, the way he had compassion on them, and welcomed them back after they had walked away from him. It's all there in chapter 9. And so, at the end of chapter 9, and this is what I've been building to, there's a a wonderful um, challenge brought to the people. End of chapter 9, verse 38. Which we have read to us. In view of all this, this is what they're saying. This is the This is the payoff, this is the climax to this message which has been preached, reminding the people of their own history and of God's part in it. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. All this grace, all this goodness, all this giving, all this guidance, in view of everything that God has done for us, we are going to bind ourselves. We're going to make a binding agreement agreement. Um, It's very uh, reminiscent to my mind of uh, what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, Brothers I urge you in view of God's mercy bearing in mind everything that God has done for you. It's a reasonable thing that you dedicate yourself to him. I urge you in view of God's mercy you, you, uh, you become living sacrifices. And now as we look at this binding agreement, as we go through uh, the passage, um, there are a number of things that we, can, we can note about it. First of all, in verse 38, it was going to be a commitment based on appreciation and gratitude. It wasn't going to be a commitment based on duty, it wasn't going to be a commitment based on law... They were going to go into this binding agreement because they appreciated what God had done and they were grateful in view of all this. It would be a commitment that would not be a flash in the pan. The intention was it would be serious and sustained. It was going to be a binding agreement. Also in verse 38, it was going to be a public commitment. A document would be signed and sealed and witnessed. The people would put their names to it. The priests... The Levites, the leaders, all those people whose names Wayne manfully struggled to bring to us and did so clearly. They were going to put their names to it. It was going to be a public commitment. And it would be a commitment by which they would be held to account and by which their future conduct could be measured. As I say, very resonant of Paul's words in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies... As living sacrifices, and Paul goes on in Romans twelve to make the point that that was not an unreasonable thing to expect people to do. In the light of what God has done, it is your reasonable service. Well, what were they signing up to do? Let's look at chapter ten, just under that's four or five headings, focusing on just four or five verses. What was the small thing? What was the binding agreement in essence? Well, verse twenty nine—that's the first one. They were signing up to follow God's law, including, and you might almost say particularly, God's law relating to the Sabbath day. Secondly, in verse thirty, they were signing up to to remember that they were God's people, to live distinct and separated lives, not to be completely isolated from other people, but not to intermarry with other people. And again, we have a we we have a. Um, The foundation there for something which finds expression in some of Paul's teaching in the New Testament about the marriage of God's people. Thirdly, they were signing up to meet their obligations under the law with regard to giving to God. Money, produce, this is in verse 32, money, produce, their time and everything. They were signing up to, as it would later be put by the prophet Malachi, to not rob God. Fourthly, in verse 37... I'm sorry if this sounds a bit self-serving, but in verse 37, the binding agreement was also to support those who did not themselves grow food or create wealth, because they had been called to serve God and his people. And part of the binding agreement on God's people was that they would support those who had responded to God's call to ministry and service. And then it's summarized, or so it's rounded up for us really in verse thirty excuse me, verse thirty-nine. In short, they were bound binding themselves to not neglect the house of God. Now, in context, I think that clearly must refer to the temple, but I think we can legitimately broaden it from that and see those words as meaning the affairs of God's people and the work of God. They were not going to neglect God's affairs and God's work, not that the care and the upkeep of our buildings and the way they're presented is unimportant. I came across service last week, uh, uh, some words from Campbell Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan was a very fine Bible teacher and Bible expositor, he was in fact the man who was pastor for many years at Westminster Chapel as I'm sure some of you know. It was in fact Campbell Morgan who introduced Martin Lloyd-Jones to that congregation, and John's eventually became his predecessor. And Campbell Morgan wrote this, whereas the house of God today is no longer material but spiritual, the material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the people of God in any locality become careless about the material place of its worship and work, it is a sign and evidence that spiritual life is at a low ebb. I think that's a very balanced statement. And God does not dwell. He didn't then and he doesn't now. God does not dwell in houses made with hands. Our buildings are essentially facilities. The primary purpose, by the way, there will come a day, God willing, when you will want to procure a building of your own. So I'm guessing, I want you to remember this, friends, if you don't mind me being a little bit uh, direct about it, a building is primarily a facility. The purpose of a facility is to facilitate. That's its main purpose. So when you are looking for a building of your own, that's what you're looking for, somewhere that will facilitate the work of God. And the building isn't the church. I mean, goodness knows if we haven't learnt that lesson over the last 15 months, then we've really had our eyes and ears shut, haven't we? That the building isn't the church, because many of Christians have been locked out, essentially, of their buildings. But that doesn't mean our buildings are unimportant how we treat our buildings and how we present them is possibly indicative, certainly Campbell Morgan felt it was, of what's going on at a spiritual level. Now I want us to remember remember as I close this. This book, Nehemiah, was written uh, by, about, and for God's people. People who were often backslidden, prone to wonder, willful, fickle. One step forward, two step backwards sort of people. But these people were, in the only way it was possible for them to be so in those days, they were God's people. In the only way in which they could be in those days. And their repentance, their resolve, their recommitment, because essentially that's what's going on here, is binding agreement is a recommitment, committing of themselves to God and to God's work and God's word. This repentance, resolve and recommitment, the binding agreement which they put their names to, was not an attempt on their part to become God's people. It was not. They were already God's people. It came from a desire to be in practice who they already were in principle. God was saying to his people then, as he says to us now, enough. Enough of this what someone has described as spiritual hokey-cokey. Do you know that song, The Hokey-Cokey? Do you? One of my favourite rend Collective songs. In the... I'm glad you appreciated that. Thank you. You and me against the wrestling. Um, in the hokey-cokey, there's a lyric that you put your left arm in and then you take your left arm out. You put your right arm in, you put your right arm out, but eventually you put your whole self in. And that's what's going on here. These people are saying we're going to be all in. Binding ourselves to God's work and to God's word and to be distinctively God's people. To honour God, to keep his law, to live for him. Put your whole self in. I, uh, I, I'm going to close by saying this. You know, it's, I think it's 54 years now since I asked Christ to be my saviour. I was 18 years of age, just one week short of my 18th birthday, in fact, when I asked Jesus to come and be my saviour and to be my friend and and to be my help, really, because I needed him very, very much. And uh, so 54 years, it's a long time, isn't it? I mean, for some of you, that's a lot longer than some of you have been alive. But by anybody's standards, over half a century is a good good while, isn't it? And uh, I'm not saying I've been all in, for Jesus all those 54 years not a bit of it I'm just like the God's people were in Nehemiah's day there's an old song that says prone to wander Lord I feel it we all of us as Christians we're natural backsliders do you know that? we are we're natural backsliders left to ourselves we will always regress rather than progress progress it takes an effort regressing just means we stop trying we don't make the effort you see I'm like that but I'm telling you this I am so glad That 54 years ago I decided to follow Jesus. And I committed myself to him. There is no one like him. There is no one else like him worth following. There is no one else like him worth serving. There is no other work like his that is so worth doing. Than serving him in the fellowship of his church. And in the work of the gospel. Let's be all in believers shall we. Let me pray. Lord we're not going to bind ourselves by making promises, we've plenty of experience of promises which are meant to endure for a lifetime, being very short lived indeed, that's the nature of the people we are. But we do tell you now we want to be all in, we want to be in that binding agreement with you, we thank you when it comes right down to it, you have bound yourself to us and you have assured us you will never leave us. You will never abandon us. You will never let us down. Help us to serve you out of appreciation and gratitude, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends, for bearing with me again. Um, To encourage and gladden your hearts, I will tell you that I'm here once more on the Book of Nehemiah. And then, once Adrian is in situ, you probably won't have to see me very often at all. Lord bless you.